What's on your mind? What are you thinking about? It's an innocent enough question in one sense, but it can get you in trouble, I've, I've learned in my marriage, because there's an understanding that what you're thinking about reveals something deeper, deeper desires and longings. What are you thinking about? Food? Oh, okay. What are, you, what are you thinking about? Cycling. I'm trying to figure out when to get my next ride in. See that's, see, that's when you start to get in trouble because why are you thinking about that when there's all these other things to be done? There's more important things to be done, more important things to care about. See, what is on your mind reveals what's in your heart, where your affections and your passions are. Not just what you love, but all kinds of things about your heart. Have you ever been in a feud like like, like an ongoing quarrel with someone. And, 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 and you're, you, you have this argument, and then it like keeps replaying in your mind. And, and, and maybe they sent an email, or maybe it was an in-person conversation, whatever the case may be. It's just there, and it's sitting on you, and you keep working it over in your mind, in your mind. You're going over it, going over What's on your mind is revealing what's in your heart, what's got you mad. Maybe it's something that you're scared of. Maybe, maybe you've been to the doctor, and they did the test, and now you're awaiting the results. What's on your mind while you're waiting for the results? You're thinking about it, you're thinking about it, you're thinking about it. it reveals what we love, it reveals what we're angry about, it reveals what we're afraid of. It reveals what we hope in, right? What are you longing for? What are you desirous of? What are you looking forward to? That will be revealed in what you think about, where your mind goes, what your mind is filled with. The, the, what, what is the magnet that keeps pulling your thoughts and your minds back to it? That reveals what is in your heart. What's in your mind shows us what's in your heart, and what's in your heart and what's in your mind is ultimately what's going to play out in your life and what you do. So if we want to have lives that are changed, according to Jesus' teaching this morning, we want to think about, along with the characters in this narrative that Matthews lays out for us, what is on their minds before we get to your mind. And like all things in the Christian life, we want to start with Christ. What is on Christ's mind? As we approach this text, simple question, look at verse 17. What is on Jesus' mind? As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, they're on a journey. They're moving towards Jerusalem. He's got something that he needs to talk about privately with his 12 friends, his 12 closest companions, because it's what he's thinking about. It's what he's going over in his mind. It's what's on his heart. What is it that he wants to talk about with them? See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This is what is on Jesus' mind because it is what is on his heart. They're on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus knows he will suffer and die. 
And every step that he takes, every day that passes, as he moves closer and closer to Jerusalem, he moves closer and closer towards the fate that awaits him there. And so it is increasingly on his mind. This is a third time now in chapter 16, in chapter 17, now in chapter 20, when Jesus is bringing up his coming death and resurrection. It's the third time he's brought it up, and he's the one who initiates the conversation. No one's asking about it. No one's like, hey, remember that time you told us about this thing? Can you tell us that again? This is what he is bringing up with his disciples because it's what's on his mind, his heart. As he speaks each time, this is now the third time, he brings greater clarity, more details. This time he introduces a few more details. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And this is the first time he mentions the specific means by which he will die. He will die by crucifixion. He will die on a cross. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? So these are, these are familiar words, right? It's familiar teachings. If you've been around the church for a while, you've heard words like this for some time. If you've been walking, if you're one of the disciples in the narrative and you've heard Jesus, this is at least the third time Jesus has brought this up. It's easy to say, yeah, I've heard this before and not think about it, but it's on Jesus' mind, so it should be on our mind. Do you understand what he's saying? I'm going to Jerusalem to be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes, the bigwigs, the power players, the politicians, the influencers of the world. They are going to look at me and he introduces this detail, he will be condemned, which means after a process of some kind of a trial, there's going to be some kind of mock trial. And we know how this plays out, right? Jesus is taken in the middle of the night and they assemble a court, they assemble a, a jury of people they already know will agree with them. So the verdict is already predetermined. And then they try to, they, they try to pull together some witnesses that they've fixed ahead of time so that they can get some kind of witnesses to agree to condemn him so that with the appearance of justice, the gravest injustice the world will ever know will be perpetrated as the only innocent one ever is condemned and found guilty. So that the great ones among the Jews, the rulers, the leaders, the politicians, take him and in the greatest of shame pass him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. This is an essential detail. It's bound up with the crucifixion because the, the Jewish people did not have legal authority to put Jesus to death, and they especially did not have authority to crucify that belonged only to the Romans. Jesus says he will be mocked and flogged and crucified. This is a strange thing. The Romans... Why do the Romans get on board with what the Jews are doing in condemning Jesus? It's politics. It's power. It's bribery. It's influence. It's all the behind-the-scenes corruption of the world. All of it conspiring together against Jesus to put him to death. He's arrested. He is tried. He is condemned. He is put to the Romans. He's handed over to the soldiers, the soldiers who will mock him. Hail, King of the Jews! They belittle him. They praise him. They ask him to prophesy, mocking the one who actually is God and King. They put a robe on him, a purple robe. Oh, here you go, ruler. They flog him. They beat him 
with rods. They whip him. They tenderize his flesh in preparation for his death. And then they crucify him. They will strip him naked. They will nail his bruised and bloodied body to a cross, suspended between heaven and earth for all to see his shame. How low, how despicable. Don't be like him is the testimony of the nations. It's the testimony of the Jews who condemn Christ to death. Do you understand the death of crucifixion? Hung on display as an example for all of ultimate humiliation while everyone gathers around and watches you slowly die, incapable of taking the next breath until you finally drown in the fluid of your own lungs while no one helps and everyone watches. It was a death so humiliating and so torturous that it was illegal to do it to even the lowest of Roman citizens. But this is the death to which our Savior would be subjected. And don't miss this. The context that Matthew puts it in, as he was going up to Jerusalem... And look at what Jesus says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. It doesn't say they captured him and took him to Jerusalem. It doesn't say he was going against his will. Every step he's taking towards Jerusalem, reminding him of this death, this shameful, torturous death that awaits him is a deliberate step he is taking, knowing full well what awaits him when he gets there. This is not an accident it is not a plan B. He goes to Jerusalem to be humiliated as the servant of servants and slave of slaves to serve you. To bless you. Because the reality is that you deserve the curse that Jesus took for your corruption. You deserve the wrath that Jesus took for your rebellion. This was God's law. This was God's way. But you went your own way. You were called to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. But you loved yourself and the created things. You were created in his image to glorify him. But you live for your own glory. Your life was taking you in the direction opposite to God. The curse, the wrath of God was all that remained for you. But Jesus goes up to Jerusalem deliberately, willingly, intentionally, knowingly to suffer and serve to save you. 
There's, there's a reality here of what Jesus is about to face that he can't even express to his disciples in this moment. There's a reality that the Son knows as he goes to the cross. The one, the Son, who has known the eternal pleasure, the eternal smile of the Father will in that moment as he dies know the face of the Father turning away in displeasure and disgust, unable to look at what the Son has become as he bears our sin. Here is Christ who has known unbroken fellowship with the Father from before the foundation of the world. Who will in a moment know that reality severed so that he can serve us who hated him. Here is Christ going to serve us preparing to bear an eternity of hell in a span of hours all poured out the full fury of the wrath of the Father on one man, Christ the Son, suffering and dying in the place of sinners like us. This is what's on his mind because you are on his heart. Have you responded? Have you let Christ be your servant? Have you let him wash you, forgive you, reward you, and welcome you? What's on his mind is to go and to serve because you are on his heart. So that's what's on Christ's mind. What about his disciples? What's on his disciples' mind? They're supposed to be his followers. They're the ones who love him, the ones who know him, the ones who travel with him, the ones who are supposed to be coming like him, the ones through whom his kingdom is supposed to come on earth. So they're probably thinking about the same things as Christ, right? Reflecting the same heart as Christ. <laughs> well, let's see where the disciples' minds are. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. What you ask for reveals what's on your mind. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Glory, power, position. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. This is what's on their minds because it's what's on their hearts. See, Jesus had us on his heart, so he had the cross on his mind, but they've got themselves on their heart, so they've got the throne on their minds. They're seeking their own greatness. Make no mistake, the, the fact that their mom asks on their behalf doesn't mean this isn't what they wanted. Now, there's, there's a little bit of speculation as to why the mother comes and, and asks and some of it's comical. Some of it makes a little bit of sense. There's, there's some speculation that uh, James and John are actually Jesus' first cousins, that their mother, Salome, who comes to speak to Jesus here, is actually the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. 
So this is kind of like a, a family thing. Like, okay, enough with Peter. You've said enough about him. We're the cousins. We, we know who actually sits on the right and the left, right? Like, Jesus, come on. So maybe there's some of that family dynamic at play. Or maybe it's just simply this reality that in most cultures, women can get away with asking for stuff that other men wouldn't be able to get away with asking. So she comes and asks on behalf of her sons. This is motherly pride, motherly interest in her children. She goes and with the boldness of a mom, she just asks for what she wants. But we know that it's what the disciples themselves want too, James and John, because Jesus, he doesn't even answer the mother. He answers them. In, in verses 22 and 23, when he says you, he's speaking in the plural and he's addressing them, the, the men, James and John. He asks them, are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to drink my cup? This, uh, it, it's a word that has a broad enough reference. In the Old Testament usage, it could refer to the wrath of God poured out, which is what Jesus himself is going to go and to suffer. He's going to drain the cup of God's wrath by dying in our place. But it can also just refer to your lot in life, what's poured out for you, what you were to receive in terms of hardship. And certainly that is the case for them. They're not going to suffer for the sins of others, but they will endure hardship for the sake of being associated with Jesus, James is going to be the first apostolic martyr in Acts chapter 12. And by the end of Revelation, we realize that John is in exile in the island of Patmos. They are suffering for the sake of being associated with Jesus. They will drink this cup. But Jesus is insistent. Yes, there are places of honor in my kingdom. But no, that's not for you to seek. And it's not for me to give. You realize how amazing Jesus' humility is here in this moment? This is so profound. Jesus, even in this moment, while they're asking about sitting on his throne, they're recognizing his greatness and his coming kingdom, he's like, listen, the Father still has authority. It's still the Father who designates who sits on my right and my left. He's still humbling himself even in this moment. And I love his humility with the other disciples, like with James and John. Like he could have cut them off here, right? Like this is a crazy thing. So like just this week, this is a description of my heart. Just this week, I'm in the office. There's this new guy working in the office. And he comes in and he's I'm, like he's drinking out of my mug. Like he's drinking coffee. And I'm like, who do you think you are to walk in here and start drinking out of Like they're coming up to Jesus and saying, hey, you know that throne that you're going to die to gain? We just want to sit on it with you. How about that? But Jesus, in humility, recognizes they don't know even what they're talking about. And says, hey, guys, let's leave this one to the authority of the Father and see how it works out. It's not just them, though that have themselves and their greatness and their position and their power on their minds. Look at how the others respond when they hear about it. Verse 24. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So they had this on their minds too. They were gunning for the same thing. And the, the two of them got there before the other ten. So they're indignant. They're upset. Now this is important to understand. This is a persistent reality in these chapters in Matthew's gospel. This is not like a one-off thing. Do you remember this whole body of teaching from chapter 18 to 20? Do you remember how it started in chapter 18? They said to Jesus, who's the greatest? That's how this whole thing started. 
And then Jesus took a child and he said, you have to, if, if you want to be great in my kingdom, understand how it works here. The greatest is the one who becomes like a child and humbles themselves. The one who doesn't cause others to sin, but lives to serve others. One who's able to, to, to humble themselves enough to go after others when they're suffering or when they're wandering with the heart of the Father to bring them back. One who's able to get over themselves and forgive others. 70 times 7, losing count of how much you've forgiven. That's who's great. And then he runs into some religious leaders who think that they're great. And they're like, hey, can I get rid of my wife for any reason at the beginning of chapter 19? And and Jesus is like, well, there's this thing called a covenant with steadfast love and faithfulness. So no, you can't just get rid of your wife when you want to. And the disciples respond with male hubris and say, well, and it's probably better to not get married. And Jesus says, yeah, why don't you think about humbling yourselves and becoming a eunuch, remaining single for the sake of the kingdom. Be humble for the sake of the kingdom. But they still don't get it. So when the children, who were Jesus' first example, come to Jesus, they want to turn away the children and welcome the rich and the powerful. But Jesus flips the whole thing on its head. Jesus turns away the rich who comes with everything. He's got something to offer and instead welcomes the children who have nothing to give. And then he shows that the last will be first and the first last by hiring the least desirable workers at the end of the day and displaying his lavish generosity by paying them for a full day's labor, saying the last will be first and the first last. And the disciples are like, yeah, but can we be great still? Can we sit on the throne? And the other ten are like, back off, I was just about to ask. You pick up on on how great the contrast is between what's on Jesus' mind and what's on the disciples' mind. This is the magnet, the power, their glory, their honor. It's the magnet that keeps pulling their thoughts back over and over again. This is where their hearts are drawn It could not be more different than Jesus. Notice this. Verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. Do you remember when the last time Jesus mentioned the Gentiles was? when he was talking about who it was who was going to execute him. See, what Jesus is saying to the disciples is if you want to operate a kingdom that way, if you want to live that way, living for honor, living for power, living for pleasure, living for ease, living for the praise of other people, your kingdom looks more like the kingdom of those who kill me than the kingdom of heaven. And that is what is the disciples' minds are fixed on Jesus keeps coming back in his mind and his thoughts and his heart to his suffering and death and they keep coming back to their honor and their glory. It's a sharp contrast which sets up the questions, the last question for us this morning. Where's your mind? What is on your mind? What's on your mind? Where does your mind keep going? Where do your thoughts keep going? Have you been concerned about your status? Where you've been approved, welcomed, praised, spoken well of, or where you have been excluded, left out, forgotten, and belittled? Are you consumed with thoughts of how others see you? Have you been thinking about your ease and your pleasure 
Now notice, ease and pleasure are not bad things. God created Sabbath rest to delight in his creation. That is a good thing. But if our minds continually go to trying to conceive of a world where we receive nothing but ease and pleasure and other people exist to facilitate that ease and pleasure, this is hunger for greatness. Have you been concerned in your mind? Have your thoughts been going towards justifying your own views, your own opinions, your own life decisions, your life choices over against those of others? See, if we're not careful, this is what social media becomes, right? We go online and we start scrolling and we see all the decisions other people make and the ways other people look at the world and think about things and what they do with their life or their family. And we start to immediately rank ourselves. Okay, we're not doing as well as them, but we're doing better than them. See, the reality is that we have a heart like the disciples, but we're a little, often we're a little more Canadianized. We're not going to be like, like we, I, I'm the greatest. But we are going to say, well, at least I'm better than him. Or at least I'm not as dumb as them. Or I haven't screwed up as much as them. We're ranking, we're positioning, we're placing ourselves. It's greatness, hunger, still. We're just like the Gentiles. Jesus wants to address you this morning if you are consumed with thoughts about how others rank you, thoughts about how others view you and esteem you, if you are living for greatness in this world, and it feels big, right? It feels big. Like how other people view you feels big. Listen, that's because it is big. Think about the God in whose image we are created. He cares deeply about how people view him. He cares deeply about whether he receives honor and praise and love and affection, whether he's rightly esteemed. He cares about these things and we're created in his image. It's not wrong for us to care about how we are perceived, how we are seen. The essence of being human, what it means to be human, is we want to know that we're seen, that we're known, that we're loved, that we're esteemed for who we are. That's part of being human. We're not trying to say, quash that, forget that, reject that. We're saying it's actually far more precious than you're treating it like. It's, it's like you've, you've got something that is precious, a precious treasure. Your sense of esteem, your sense of lovedness, your sense of acceptance. And you're trying to hold on to it yourself to protect it. C.S. Lewis once famously talked about humility and said something like this. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So it's not a matter of running yourself down, it's a matter of not being so consumed with thoughts about how other people conceive of you or how other people perceive you. That's, that's helpful. Tim Keller describes this as the freedom of self-forgetfulness. John Piper describes it as the miracle of self-forgetfulness, as, as John Piper is, is, is what would typically do. He emphasizes this takes a miracle for us to be able to stop being consumed, even for a moment, with ourselves, takes a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in us. But I want to be clear. When we pursue humility, thinking less of ourselves, that is not saying that we shouldn't think about what is good for ourselves or our own joy. 
our own pleasure, or even our own exaltation. What I'm saying is because it's so precious, entrust it to one who can keep it safe. See, see we're like... We're, we're like holding on to this precious treasure. It's like fine china. It's, it's precious. And you know you've seen, if, if you've been around for a while, you've seen a mom, maybe she's in a kitchen or she's working around the house or whatever, and she's got kids running around and she's got maybe like a baby strapped to her. She's trying to do the dishes or feed someone or something. She's doing all these things. Now picture us living life doing that and we're at the same time trying to hold on to something that's so easily broken, something that's so easily shattered, and we're holding on to it tight because we think we're the ones that can keep it the most safe or we're handing it off to other people saying here you hold on to this for me you esteem me you love me but in reality it's not safe with them or with us what God is calling us to do is to entrust our exaltation our acceptance our lovedness our seenness to him who sees in secret and will reward he will Look at, look at what he says in verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. This needs to be our mindset. We entrust our greatness. We entrust our exaltation. We entrust our praise and our lovedness to God. And we lower ourselves. We stop fighting for it. We stop contending for supremacy in the eyes of others. This needs to be a mindset of service and slavery. We are a servant and a slave to others. This needs to be deliberate and conscious because it never happens by accident. No one ever just woke up in the morning and was like, whoa, I just started serving. This was amazing. I just, I just wanted to be the slave of other people today. That's not the way our hearts are naturally inclined, right? It needs to be a mindset, a way of thinking, something that's on our mind. Not just because it doesn't come natural and it requires deliberateness, but because it requires deliberate and careful thought. Sometimes it is counterintuitive. I'm going to pick on dads for a couple minutes here because it's Father's Day. The question of how we serve is not simply what makes life easier or what makes people happy. A father can arrange the whole world centered around the child at the center of the universe and do that child great spiritual harm. A dad can arrange the home life, all of life, around the wife, around the mom to make her life easier and do her great spiritual harm. The question is not what it makes things easier or what makes people happier. The question is what will serve them? What will do them spiritual good? What will help them in growing in conformity to Christ? It requires careful thought. Sometimes that will mean that for dad to serve this family well, he needs to go out for a night and be with his friends who can encourage him and strengthen him and refresh him in the Lord so that he can return home reinvigorated and ready to serve. Sometimes that means in given seasons, a dad will need to be away from the home a little bit more to invest in further schooling or to work extra hours so that he can be an example of hard work and be able to provide for his family. But sometimes dad just needs to be home. How do you decide 
which, what serves their spiritual good. Sometimes a dad needs to be a disciplinarian, even when it makes no one happy. Dad needs to bring the heavy and be the bad guy that no one's happy with in a moment. Sometimes dad needs to bring the levity, the life, the joy, the happiness that only a goof that likes dad jokes can bring. How do you know which one, what serves? How do I become the least, the lowest, the servant of all? It's not what makes life easier, not what makes people happier. How do I help them in their conformity to Christ? How do I pursue their interests above my own? How in the world do you get there? How do you live with this ruling mentality? Whether you're a dad or not, whether you're just a church member, what ministries do you serve in? What do you do when you show up on a Sunday At your work, how do you serve? How do you love the people around you? How do you take this mentality with you? You need a new mindset. We need new thoughts. Look at verse 28. Here's our example. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what Jesus did? It's still on his mind. Still on his, he started the conversation there. And even when the disciples pull it astray to think about their own greatness, Jesus pulls it back to think about his own service, his own suffering, his own death. He is consumed by this. The reason he is able to live this is because this is what is constantly on his mind and constantly on his heart. See, the reason why we so often reflect more of the ways of the world and the world's kingdom than Christ's kingdom is because, frankly, we haven't thought about the cross since last last Sunday. That's a church thing. This is my work life. This is my family life. We, we treat the cross like it's the gateway into the kingdom rather than the thing that sets the paradigm, that sets all expectations, that gives shape to all of Christian life and all my interactions. How do I go low? How do I serve? How do I become a slave of all to become like Christ? You know who embodied this? The Apostle Paul. He said this in Galatians chapter 2. He said, the life that I now live, I live by faith faith in Christ, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, his heart was captivated by the reality that Jesus paid the ransom price for him. And so that heart affection took his mind captive so that he kept thinking about the cross so that his life reflected that reality. What we so desperately need to be as a people is a people who treasure with the affections of our heart and meditate on with the thoughts of our mind the death of our Lord Jesus in our place so that our life reflects the calling, the purchase price. He ransomed us for something to serve and to become a slave. For us to do it, his cross needs to be on our minds and in our hearts. What's on your mind? How can I serve? How can I go low? How can I bless others? If my king has become a slave, how can I be proud? Let's pray.